Our New Testament reading this morning is from 1 John chapters 2 and 3. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him and we will see him as he is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from John chapter three. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please pray with me. Living God, apart from you, we are but ashes and dust. And so we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would come upon us as we gather here for worship. We pray that you would illumine the scriptures, that we may behold the glory of Christ, and that we may hear your voice, O God. We pray that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, that you would renew our wills, that you would persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus this morning as he has offered to us in the gospel. So bless our time now as we open your word through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So this Lent, we are using this resource from Kate Bowler over at Duke Divinity. Scott already mentioned it, called Bless the Lent We Actually Have. And, uh, and today, our theme from that resource as we're going through these different Lenten beatitudes, if you will, is blessed are the curious. And from that guide, uh, Kate Bowler and her team, they write these words. As children, we are naturally curious and poke or bite everything we can get our hands on in order to learn more about the things we do not understand. But something about adulthood, its certainty, knowledge, experience, or maybe even the access to Google at our fingertips seems to stifle our curiosity. What is lost when we lose the ability to wonder, to ask questions without easy answers? Nicodemus, a religious teacher, has difficult questions for Jesus, yet he first tells him everything he already knows and has experienced to be true about Jesus. But faith is not simply built upon things that can be seen. God requires a more hope-filled imagination. Jesus gives him the time, again, and the place, above, of transformation and new life, but Nicodemus' imagination doesn't stretch that far. He can't seem to understand that he must be reborn again from above or anew. Nicodemus was weighed down by what he knows to be true and tangible in his world, but standing before him is the sign that he cannot yet see. Jesus is the sign from God that shows us how we live in a reality where two things can be true at once. Jesus is from this world and not of this world. Jesus is a human and the Son of God. Jesus will be humiliated and exalted upon the cross. Jesus died and still lives. Jesus is the sign of God's love and the one who asks us to have faith in things we cannot yet see. God blesses the curious because they are ready to learn and experience something new. Nicodemus followed his curiosity about Jesus to get him into the same building with Jesus, but not truly experience the transformational new and eternal life that only Christ can give. It's a lovely resource. I commend it to you. They have it available for individuals, for groups, and even for sermons. And as I said last week, it makes sermon writing a lot of fun when you start with such a lovely and, and helpful base uh, to, get, to get the ball rolling. But I want us to think about Nicodemus, because Nicodemus, as we think about this beatitude, blessed are the curious, I love this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus with his own inner toil of curiosity versus certainty. His own inner toil of seeking versus settled. And so we're going to be thinking about those things as we consider this encounter and Nicodemus's inner struggle as we ponder this Lenten beatitude, blessed are the curious. But let's start by examining ourselves. It's a good place to start. What are you seeking what are you seeking? We are all seekers in one way or another, right? I think we'd probably all agree with that without too much convincing needed. Is that fair to say? I think every one of us, if we look at our lives, we can pretty easily discover ways that we live out of a sense that there's something missing. 
There's something about the fullness of life that we aren't yet experiencing. And so we seek after that which we desire. We'll seek security or answers, love, hope, peace, a sense of belonging, an experience of being known. We'll seek freedom from places where we feel trapped or from our inability to get unstuck from our own destructive habits. We seek relief from grief or pain, from our fears and our prolonged waiting, from the fatigue of persevering through a trying season of life or from the relentless critical voice in our heads that's constantly telling us that we aren't enough or we don't have enough or we're not doing enough. We're seekers because we share this experience of life in a world that we cannot control or master, a world in which we are vulnerable. We experience frustration and loss and disappointment, and so we keep seeking. Sky Jatani has this wonderful little book called With that I know a number of us have read and even read together. And he takes up this question about whether all religions lead to the same place. And he actually says the opposite is true. All religions begin in the same place. Because we live in this world that's chaotic and dangerous and mysterious and human beings throughout all of history and all over the planet have desired ways of trying to understand and control and manage that. And so all of the religions in the world sort of begin in that same kind of human experience, but they go in very different directions. The religions of the world, the philosophies of the world, they take us in many different directions out of our common experience of life in a world in which we are vulnerable. We are seeking. Yet at the same time, as we look at our lives, we see that seeking isn't actually the only dynamic at play, is it? Right? In other ways, we're very settled. In some ways, we feel like we're lacking, but in other ways, we feel like we've arrived. We're very confident in where we are. Maybe it's in our beliefs, perhaps, or our values, or our habits, or routines, our commitments. We're settled in what we know about the world, in ways in which we know we're right, or we at least think that we are. We're settled in our political views, or our moral outrage, or in our opinions about ourselves or others. We're settled in our cynicism, perhaps, no longer asking the sincere questions that take you deeper into the great conversation and open you to possibilities you've never considered. Or perhaps you're just settled in your success because you've made it, right? You've arrived and you're no longer the student, now you're the teacher. We could go on and on and on. We could go on exploring the ways that you and I are this complicated mix of settled and seeking, this complicated mix of certain and curious. The ways that we live into the world toward and away from God out of this complicated mix of what's going on inside of us. What are you seeking? And where do you go to seek it? And where in your life do you feel pretty settled? Blessed are the curious. I think these questions of where are we seeking and where are we settled are important for any of us who want to live with self-awareness, self-understanding, and these are precisely the questions that the story of Jesus and Nicodemus prompts us to ask. Because Nicodemus comes to Jesus actually much in the way that we do as both settled and seeking. 
And I think it's helpful for us to consider the way that Jesus engages him as we consider how might God be engaging you and me this morning in our seeking and in our settledness? How might God, how might God be inviting you today into a posture of blessed curiosity? Well, let's start by thinking about who Nicodemus is. Okay, let's just look at him. John tells us he's a Pharisee and a ruler in the community. In other words, Nicodemus is a person of privilege and status. He's educated, he's successful, he's respected, he has credentials. People look up to him as a teacher and a leader. He's a pillar of the community. So understandably, he is settled in many ways, right? He knows what he believes, and those beliefs are supported by a wealth of knowledge, years of study. His place in society is secure. And that's exactly how he comes to Jesus, isn't it? It's exactly how he comes. He comes as a teacher, not as a disciple. He comes as an authority figure who's there to assess Jesus, not primarily as a disciple coming to follow, at least not yet. He's a curious figure, and he takes an interesting turn, and it's a little ambiguous by the time you get to the end of the book. But at this point in this episode, He's coming as a teacher and not as a disciple. And more than that, he comes under the cover of night, which tells us that Nicodemus is feeling a little unsure about coming to visit Jesus, which is understandable because at this point in the story, Jesus has just made a big scene in the temple. And he's challenged the religious establishment in Jerusalem, and that's already made him pretty unpopular with Nicodemus' peers. But as we already kind of know, Nicodemus is a complicated guy. He's intrigued with Jesus. He sees that God is at work in Jesus. And so he wants to seek out Jesus and know more. But he also sees that Jesus does not comfortably fit within the parameters of his comfort zone. Even just at first glance, Nicodemus can tell that Jesus doesn't fit within some of the more subtle structures of his own life or their society, and so Nicodemus comes carefully, probably with some insecurity, maybe even some shame, and see, he comes under the cover of night so he won't be seen. Unless we think that this is just like a tiny detail that I'm you know, making a mountain out of a molehill, later in the book, in chapter 19, John will actually refer to Nicodemus again as the one who came by night right? That's at the scene of Jesus' burial um, after the crucifixion. It's a little one-liner, but John wants us to see Nicodemus as this one who's coming out of darkness and into the light. But at this moment in the story, he has not left the darkness yet. He actually brings some of his own darkness into the process of seeking Jesus, just like we do. But of course, Jesus is more than capable of handling Nicodemus's complexity and his dysfunction. He can handle mine, he can handle yours, and that's good news as we come to seek him. That's what makes a story so great. So Nicodemus shows up, I guess, at the house where Jesus was staying that night, and he comes respectfully. He addresses Jesus as rabbi, he acknowledges that he knows Jesus is a teacher whom God has clearly gifted and called to be a rabbi, but he comes as a teacher not as a disciple. He comes more as the CEO who is noticing a promising young up-and-comer, right? He's not so much as someone who's expecting to discover something he doesn't yet understand. 
And if you'll notice, he doesn't lead with a question, but with an assessment. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us probably have that same tendency, don't we? When we consider our life with God or when we come to Jesus in worship or in prayer, how often do we actually come as wide open seekers expecting to discover something new, something new about God, something new about ourselves that we've actually never understood before? How often do you really come with an openness to God that welcomes his tinkering in your life, his meddling? How often do you really bring your beliefs and your values and your behaviors with open hands, your priorities with open hands into the light of God so that he may search you and maybe even change your settled ways as he sees fit. If you're like Nicodemus, or if you're like me, then you're probably more likely to be stubborn about those things. You're more, you're more likely to be a genuine seeker really in the, only in the areas where you feel stuck, where you feel like you've hit a dead end. And that's what we see in Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus. He's not really feeling stuck or at a loss in life generally. He's pretty confident and comfortable overall, but he's intrigued with Jesus. And so he comes seeking clarity. Or maybe he comes to seek to mold this young, talented teacher to be more of a company man, right? One who could be a rising star if he would just learn how to play the game the way you're supposed to do it. It's hard to say exactly what brings Nicodemus to Jesus's door. But almost immediately when he arrives and he leads with his agenda, he discovers that this encounter is not going to go according to his plan. Nicodemus comes seeking Jesus on his own terms, but Jesus responds by turning the conversation toward Nicodemus's settledness, not the things Nicodemus thought he was putting on the table for discussion. And so Nicodemus leads with his assessment of Jesus, which is a positive one, and Jesus responds in a way that feels maybe a little bit rude. No one can see the kingdom without being born from above. You must be born from above. That's what he says. So in other words, Nicodemus comes with a compliment, right? And Jesus responds with, you don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> Jesus, great at parties. Brings good wine, but it makes the conversation weird. Jesus basically says, look, to the extent that you're rightly discerning God's activity, the reason you're able to see these things is not what you think it is. And furthermore, Jesus pushes on one area of Nicodemus' settledness that must have been off the table for Nicodemus, the importance of his birth. See, Nicodemus and the other Pharisees had a strong belief that belonging to God's family and participating in God's kingdom was very closely tied to your family heritage. To be born into the family of Abraham was a really big deal because it was that family to whom God had given the promise of blessing. And here Jesus basically says that your ability to perceive and participate in what God is doing in the world is not based on your being physically born into the right family. It's about being spiritually born into God's family and marked with baptismal water as a child of God. And that spirit, God's spirit, who gives us eyes to see God, who gives us life in communion with God, that spirit 
is not one that you can pin down or predict, Jesus says. That spirit blows like wind wherever he wants to blow. He doesn't color inside the lines of your coloring book. And the challenge for Nicodemus is to recognize that activity in the world is neither circumscribed within nor fully synonymous with this earthly family of Abraham's children to which both Jesus and Nicodemus belong. And so Jesus, he is pushing on some really settled places in Nicodemus's life and faith. He's pushing on his heritage. He's pushing on his education. He's pushing on his belief about what God can and will do. And Jesus shines this new light on all of them and calls Nicodemus to reimagine his life with God in light of God's spirit. And of course, Nicodemus pushes back, right? How can this be? He gets hung up on the born again thing, which is really what Jesus is emphasizing. Uh, what, what Jesus is really emphasizing is being born from above. That's a Greek word with two senses, and it's a little bit funky in this verse. And of course, we have our own stories. If you've lived in the United States for most of your life, if you've lived in the West, if you've been around evangelicalism, you understand born again is a loaded phrase, right? Um, whether you've grown up inside of evangelical circles that use that language to describe authentic Christian faith, or you've grown outside of those circles but looking in, we have established comfort or discomfort with that phrase, born again, through our over-familiarity with it, which makes it really hard to read a text like this with fresh eyes. Nicodemus' struggle with it sounds ridiculous to us. But Jesus challenges him to recognize that this hope of the Spirit is something that the people have actually been longing for all along. This is not some new innovation but the very dawning of Israel's great hope of which the prophets had spoken. The day when the spirit of the Lord would come and usher in a new day for God's people. A day when all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he pushes on Nicodemus. And again, with kind of a rude, a rude turn, he's like, aren't you the teacher of Israel, but you don't even know this stuff? Jesus doesn't come across as particularly comforting or welcoming to Nicodemus, but it's important for us to remember who he's talking to here. Nicodemus is the ultimate insider. He's the expert. He's the religious leader. If you read the Gospel of John one more chapter forward from here and you meet the Samaritan woman at the well where Jesus meets the ultimate outsider, you get a very, very different tone. Jesus is a brilliant teacher and a brilliant pastor, and he's able to show up and meet us right where we are, each and every one of us, in the places where we need to be encouraged and where we need to be challenged. So what's important for us here in what Jesus says to Nicodemus about needing to be born above by water and the Spirit? He's not saying that you and I need to have some dramatic conversion story, right? N.T. Wright, I've said this before, has a brilliant thing. He's like saying, asking for your conversion story as proof of spiritual vitality is like asking for your birth certificate to prove that you're alive. That's not how you know of people's life. We don't know of vitality by the proof that you were born. You know of vitality by vital signs. Jesus says you'll know us by our love. You'll know us by the fruit of the Spirit, not by some particular story that fits a particular script. But what he is saying 
is that your belonging to God's family, your participation in God's life, even your discernment of what is good and right and true is not something that you attain by the way of your own achievement or education, nor is it something that's just a given because of your background or even your beliefs, but rather you and I, we are dependent upon God for our life. Can we see that? And also that participating in life with God is not a solo endeavor or a self-guided journey. It's not an abstract or entirely inward spiritual life, but it's one that takes place in the community of God's people, a community we enter just like Jack did through the waters of baptism. That's how we participate in the vitality of faith. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, in effect, don't be so settled in your settledness. Don't rest on the wrong things, but seek the Lord. Recognize that your life is a gift of the Spirit who seeks you. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Again, Jesus, great at parties. (laughs) He brings up two weird Bible stories. He says that the Son of Man must be lifted up which is recalling two Bible stories that Nicodemus would have been really familiar with, but you and I may not be. One is from Daniel 7 about the Son of Man. One is from Numbers 21 about a bronze serpent. That Son of Man story in Daniel 7 is this figure who comes riding on the clouds as this great victorious godlike figure that's this victorious sign. And then the bronze serpent story is, comes from Moses' days when the people of Israel have turned away from God and judgment in the form of poisonous snakes has come upon them. And God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent and lift it up and everyone who looks at the bronze serpent will be saved. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, I am not the kind of teacher you think I am. Rather, It is the son of man who has descended, who can speak of the heavenly things. That's some pretty serious credentials that Jesus is claiming for himself by implication. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, I can speak of God because I have come from him in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine as the son of man who has actually descended. Furthermore, plot twist, this son of man is going to have to be lifted up the way the bronze serpent was lifted up to rescue you, expert, settled one, guy with all the answers, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this ultimate religious insider, the ultimate answer man, you have nowhere else to look but to the son of man who is lifted up. Nowhere else to look to learn the things of the heavenly light. Nowhere else to look to be rescued. Jesus here is hinting at the cross and he's promising eternal life. And as you and I think about eternal life, it's so important that we recognize, yes, we are talking about eternity in the sense of that which does not end. Yet it's not only life after death that we are talking about in this phrase, eternal life, it is the life of the eternal one, the life of the living God into which you and I are now born through the spirit of God and into which God invites us to participate now. This life that lasts, a life that fits the world that God is making to last, 
a life of love toward God and neighbor, a life lived in the light of God's presence, and a life we begin to enter as we fix our gaze upon the Son of Man who is lifted up to take away the sins of the world and who will come again to make all things new. What are you seeking? And where do you go to find it? And where are you settled? Where is God maybe disturbing your settledness this morning to invite you into a place of blessed curiosity? To close, I want us to just think about four postures very quickly that get in the way of curiosity. Certainty, judgment, fear, and control. These are four enemies of curiosity. And as homework, I think we can take from us, from this place, as we begin to think about what does it look like for us to come not out of primarily our settledness, but out of seeking? What does it look like for us to come as those open to God and what he would do in our life? We have to wrestle with our certainty. I was watching a show, I was talking yesterday with our elder and deacon candidates and I was reminded of, a, of an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live from probably 10 years ago where Cornell West from Harvard was on the show and Jimmy Kimmel was asking him about, about his faith. How do you know and how, how can you be so sure? And he just looked, he looked at him, Cornell West looked at Jimmy Kimmel and he goes, there is a world of difference between rational certainty and blessed assurance. That's it. Our certainty makes us settled and where we don't need God. Our assurance is rooted in relationship and we're okay because God has us. When you live into the world from a place of assurance rather than certainty, you can live into the world as one who's curious. Similarly, judgment. We wrestle with our judgment. How often do we close ourselves off to one another? How often do we close ourselves off to even aspects of ourselves because we think that's not okay? Even my own feeling of anxiety. I know that's bad, I shouldn't. And so you don't even bother to learn to understand it because you're trying to put it away. Homework, turn judgment into curiosity and be prepared to be surprised in the way God shows up in your life as you get to know others and as you get to know yourself. Fear, fear keeps us from being curious because you can never be truly curious about the thing you're trying to protect yourself from. You try to keep a safe distance. But friends, you are held by the living God who raises the dead. You are empowered by a spirit of power, not a spirit of fear. And that spirit launches you into the world to befriend others in the name of Jesus and to get to know even the darkest corners of your own soul. You're okay because of him. You have nothing to fear because he's with you. You can ask the questions. You can draw near. You can befriend. And then lastly, control. We can't be truly curious when we have to be in charge of, of the outcomes. When we're responsible for how it all works out, we can't really wonder and be open to God's leading. And so surrender becomes critical for our knowing the blessed curiosity to which God invites us, the place where we might actually meet him. God, give us grace to transform our certainty into assurance, our judgment into curiosity, our fear into trust, our control into surrender. Because blessed are the curious, because they 
can seek God and discover the wonder of childlike faith. Would you pray with me? Our God, we need your help. We confess that we don't even understand the depth to which we need your help. We feel like we've got some things figured out and we want to rest on those laurels. But God, would you move toward us and would you draw us toward you? Open us to your leading. Open us to your love. Open us to your beauty, to your dream for our lives and for the world that we may be changed in your presence. And would you help us to be curious like children as those dependent upon you for our life, as those open to our neighbor, as those excited to discover afresh what you're up to in the world, to see what we've not yet seen, to behold aspects of your glory we have not yet beheld. We need your help for all these things and we ask for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.